millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Whilst we lay near Cork, we were joined by one Richard Pullen. Amongst others, he had exchanged from the English militia into the Irish and volunteered to us rifles from the North Mayo. He brought with him little else to boast of but his wife and two children, Charles and Susan. Charles was a mischievous boy of about 12 and Susan was a pretty little lass of about 14 years of age. I remember they all went with us to Copenhagen and got through that expedition pretty well. That affair suited a man of Pullen's description, for he didn't like too much service, and we soon found he was rather a shy cock. None of your North Mayo, Herr Master Pullen, used to be constantly flung into his teeth when he was lagging behind on the march. In 1808, he was again wanted, when our four companies went to Portugal, but Pullen begged off, on account of the wife and the two children, Charles and Susan. Often had he to endure the taunt again, None of your North Mayo here, Master Pollen, till we were fairly away from Hyde. After we had knocked the frogs out of Portugal, marching on Sahugan, we fell in with the army under Sir John Moore, and amongst the rifles that came with them afresh from England, we found Pullen and his wife, with their two children, Charles and Susan. I remember that the meeting with Pullen caused no small fun amongst us, and North Mayo was again the byword for a few days. Nothing. I thought at that time, could tame down the high spirits and thoughtlessness of the British soldier. Alas, I lived to see that I was mistaken, and indeed saw them pretty well tamed before many more days were over our heads. I remember remarking that Pullen, even on the first day of the retreat to Corunya, looked very chapfallen and seedy, and he was even beginning then to complain that he could not stand much more. The wife and the children too were dropping behind. They all thought, poor souls, that when night came on they were, of course, to be billeted, but the open world was now their only refuge, and no allowance to stop or lie down, even on the bare heath, at that time. I saw Pullen again on the third or fourth day, neither the wife nor children were there with him, 
nor could he tell where they were. He could only answer for himself, and expected to drop dead, he said, every step. That's all I ever saw of Pullen, and his wife and children on the retreat, or even thought of them, for I had enough to do to keep my own strength up. When we landed at Portsmouth, both myself and others, to our no small surprise, saw Pullen once more, and much we wondered at the sight of him, when so many better and stronger soldiers had died before half of that retreat was accomplished. We had not even then spirits enough left to jeer him about North Mayo, and to add to the dejection of poor Pullen, we found that he had left behind him, and knew nothing of the fate of either his wife or his children, Charles and Susan. As the men continued to disembark, however, there was Pullen inquiring anxiously of every one for some tidings of them. None, however, could he get. At last he saw his wife coming up the beach, and hobbled off to meet her, each at the same moment inquiring for the children, Charles and Susan. He trusted they were with the wife, and she hoped they were with the husband, and both sat down upon the beach and cried in concert. All our men thought it was useless of them to continue their inquiries, but they never failed to ask if their offspring, of every fresh face they fell in with, who had been in that retreat. In about a fortnight's time, not satisfied, they advertised Charles and Susan in the public newspapers, and we all laughed at the very idea of their ever finding them again, and told them they might have spared the money. To our no small surprise, however, the artillery at Plymouth answered their advertisement, stating that a little girl had been heard screaming upon the mountains in Spain by them in the night, and that they had taken care of her as well as they could, and had her then with them. The description answering, the girl was forwarded to Hythe, and Pullen and his wife once more embraced their daughter Susan. Meanwhile, no tidings came of the boy, and Pullen died at Walcheron, with many a gallant soldier for his fellow victim in that dreadful country. The wife had confessed long before that the child she had given birth to after the retreat, she had every reason to believe, was a Frenchman by the father's side, for she related her adventures to many of us at that time, and told, amongst other things, that she and other women, having taken refuge in a barn, were there overtaken by the French in the night, and treated by those gentlemen in a very unceremonious manner. It is easy to suppose that Mrs. Pullen had no great wish to go on service again, and much did the endeavour to persuade Pullen to evade it too. But, the whole regiment being under orders for Walcheron, Pullen could not escape the chance. At last, however, he tried to excuse himself by tampering with his eyes, which he made sore by putting snuff in them. He was, however, detected, disgraced, and sailing with the expedition, died, as I said before, at Walcheron. After his death, Mrs. Pullen and her daughter were sent to their parish, which was in Warwickshire, and after she had left us some time, a letter arrived from a son, Charles, who was a prisoner in France. There was, I think, not a man in the regiment who recollected the North Mayor recruit but myself. War and pestilence and discharge had taken all away. The bugle major opened the letter, and on inquiry, found that I alone knew the parents of the writer, but no answer that I ever heard of was sent to poor Charles. The captain of Pullen's company, Crampton, was dead, and the company was almost entirely new. I myself was then almost in a dying state, and the matter was soon altogether forgotten, so that, whether Mrs. Pullen ever again saw a son, I cannot take upon me to say. 
It was during the heat of the day of Vimero. We were rather hotly pressed by the enemy, after having advanced somewhat too near their force. Give and take is all fair enough, but we were getting more kicks and halfpence, as the saying is, and their balls stung us so sharply that the officers gave the word to fire and retire. Doubtless, many got a leaden messenger as they did so, which saved them the unpleasant necessity of retracing their ground altogether. Jock Gillespie and myself wheeled about and obeyed the order. Just as we had done so, I saw Gillespie limp along as though someone had bestowed a violent kick upon his person. However, he didn't give up at first, but continued to load and fire and make off with the other skirmishers till we halted and made another stand, for we never went further from them once we engaged than we could possibly help. Gillespie loaded and fired very sharply, I recollect, seemingly quite affronted at the treatment he had received, but he got weaker and more lame as he did so, and at last was quite unable to continue the game any longer, and when we advanced again, he was floored from loss of blood. I had asked him once or twice where he was hit, but he seemed unwilling to say, till at last he confessed, and the confession gave him apparently as much pain as the wound. After the battle was over, I observed him endeavouring to get about, and limping as badly as if one leg was a foot shorter than the other, whilst our men, who had got hold of the story, kept calling after and making all sorts of fun about his wound, till poor Gillespie, who was a very sensitive man, sat down and cried like a child with vexation. I never saw him after that night, and I rather think his wound had completely disabled him, and that eventually he got a discharge. I remember a great many of the leaders and heroes of the wars of my own time. Alas, they have been cleared off of late pretty handsomely. A few years more, and the world will be without another living remembrancer of either them or their deeds. The ranks are getting thin, too, amongst those who, like myself, were the tools with which the great men of former days won their renown. I don't know a single living man now who was a comrade during the time I served, very nearly 15 years back, I remember, however, meeting with Robert Liston, and that meeting brings Marshal Beresford to my mind. Robert Liston was a corporal in the 2nd Battalion of the Rifles when we lay for a few days in the passages of a convent in Portugal. We were then making for the frontiers of Spain when we were swept into that disastrous retreat to Coruña. There was a punishment parade in the square of this convent a soldier of the 92nd or 79th was the culprit, and the kilts were formed to witness the performance. Some of the rifles were looking from the windows of the convent at the punishment of the Highlander, when a brickbat was hurled from one of the casements and fell at the very toe of the lieutenant colonel, who was standing in the midst and in command of the regiment. The lieutenant colonel, whose name I never knew, was of course indignant at such an act. He gazed up at the window from which the brick had been thrown, and caused an inquiry instantly to be made. It was between the lights when this happened, and it was impossible to discover who had done it. However, two or three men of the rifles were confined on suspicion. A man named Baker flatly accused Corporal Liston of the act, upon which Liston was marched a prisoner to Salamanca, a distance, I should think, of some hundred miles. And often did he complain of his hard fate in being a prisoner so long. When we got to Salamanca, we halted there for eight days, and Liston, being tried by General Court Martial, was sentenced to receive 800 lashes. 
The whole brigade turned out on the occasion, and I remember that the drummers of the 9th Regiment were the inflictors of the lash. Liston received the whole sentence without a murmur. He had, indeed, been a good soldier, and we were all truly sorry for him. In fact, he always declared solemnly that he had no more to do with the brickbat than Marshal Beresford, who commanded the brigade. Whoever committed the act, in my opinion, well deserved what Liston got. Marshal Beresford was in command of the brigade at this time, and I well remember what a fine-looking soldier he was. He was equal to his business, too, I should say, and he, amongst others of our generals, often made me think that the French army had nothing to show in the shape of officers who could at all compare with ours. There was a noble bearing in our leaders, which they, on the French side, as far as I was capable of observing, had not, and I am convinced that the English soldier is even better pleased to be commanded by some man of rank in his own country than by one who has risen from his own station. They are a strange set, the English, and so determined and unconquerable that they will have their own way if they can. Indeed, it requires one who has authority in his face, as well as at his back, to make them respect and obey him. They see too often, in the instance of sergeant majors, that command does not suit ignorant and coarse-minded men, and that tyranny is too much used even in the brief authority which they have. A soldier, I am convinced, is driven often to insubordination by being worried by that these little-minded men for their various trifles about which the gentleman never thinks of tormenting him. The moment the severity of the discipline of our army is relaxed, in my opinion, farewell to its efficiency, but for our men to be tormented about trifles, as I have seen at times, is often very injurious to a whole corps. I never saw Liston after that punishment whilst in Spain, and I suppose he remained behind and got on in the best manner he was able in the rear. But about ten years afterwards, as I was passing down Sloane Street in Chelsea, I observed a watchman calling the hour. It struck me that I knew his face, and turning back I stopped him, asking if he was not Robert Liston, formerly a corporal in the 95th Rifles. After answering in the affirmative, the first words he spoke were, Oh, Harris, do you remember what happened to me at Salamanca? I do well, I said. I was never guilty, he continued. There is no occasion for me to deny it now, but I tell you that I was never guilty of the crime for which I suffered. Baker was a villain, and I believe that he himself the culprit. I recollect Marshal Beresford making a speech on the subject of the buttons of our greatcoats, and, however such a subject may appear trifling for a general officer to speak on, I can tell you it was a discourse which our men, some of them, much needed, for they had been in the habit of tearing off the buttons from their coats, and after hammering them flat, passing them as English coin, in exchange for the good wines of Spain, so that, at last, the Spaniards finding they got nothing by the exchange but trumpery bits of battered lead, and the children in that country not being in the habit of playing at dumps as ours are, they made complaints to the marshal. Halting the brigade, therefore, one day, he gave them a speech upon this fraud, and ended by promising a handsome flogging to the first man he found thereafter, whose greatcoat would not keep buttoned in windy weather. At Sahagun, we fell in with the army under command of Sir John Moore. I forget how many thousand men were there, but they were lying in and around the town when we arrived. 
The rifles marched to an old convent, some two miles from Sahagun, where we were quartered, together with a part of the 15th Hussars, some of the Welsh fusiliers and straggling bodies of men belonging to various other regiments, all seeming on the quivive and expecting the French to fall in with them every hour. As our small and way-worn party came to a halt before the walls of the convent, the men from these different regiments came swarming out to greet us, loudly cheering us as they rushed up and seized our hands. The difference in appearance between ourselves and these newcomers was indeed, just then, very great. They looked fresh, from good quarters and good rations. Their clothes and accoutrements were comparatively new and clean, and their cheeks ruddy with the glow of health and strength. Whilst our men, on the contrary, were gaunt-looking, wayworn and ragged, our faces burnt almost to the hue of the Asiatics by the sun, our accoutrements rent and torn, and many without even shoes to their feet. However, we had some work in us yet, and perhaps were in better condition for it than our more fresh-looking comrades. And now our butchers tucked up their sleeves and quickly set to work, slaughtering oxen and sheep, which we found within the convent walls, whilst others of our men, lighting fires in the open air upon the snow, commenced cooking the fragments, which were cut up and distributing to them, so that the very soon after our arrival, we were more sumptuously regaled than we had been for many days. After this meal, we were ordered into the convent, and with our knapsacks on our backs, and arms in our hands, threw ourselves down to rest upon the floor of a long passage. Overcome with hard toil and long miles, our wearied men were soon buried in a deep and heavy sleep. In the middle of the night, I remember, as well as if the sounds were at this moment in my ear, that my name was called out many times without my being completely awakened by the summons. The repeated call seemed mixed up with some circumstance in my dreams, and it was not until the noise awoke some of the men lying nearer to the entrance of the passage that they took up the cry that I was effectively roused. From weariness and the weight of my knapsack and the quantity of implements I carried, I was at first quite unable to gain my legs, but when I did so, I found that Quartermaster Surtees was the person who was thus disturbing my rest. "'Come, be there quick, Aris,' said he, as I picked up my way by the light of the candle he held in his hand. "'Look amongst the men, and rouse up all the shoemakers you have in four companies. I have a job for them which must be done instantly.' With some little trouble, and not a few curses from them, as I stirred them up with the butt of my rifle, I succeeded in waking several of our snoring handicrafts, and the quartermaster, bidding us instantly follow him, led the way to the very top of the convent stairs, passing then into a ruinous-looking apartment along which we walked upon the rafters, there being no flooring. He stopped when he arrived at its further extremity. Here he proceeded to call our attention to a quantity of barrels of gunpowder lying beside a large heap of raw bullocks' hides. "'Now, Aris,' said he, "'keep your eyes open and mind what you are about here. "'General Crawford offers you instantly to set to work "'and sew up every one of these barrels in the hides lying before you. "'You are to sew the skins with the hair outwards and be quick about it, "'for the General swears that if the job is not finished in half an hour, he will hang you.' "'The latter part of this order was anything but pleasant, "'and whether the General ever really gave it, "'I never had an opportunity of ascertaining.' I only know that I give the words as they were given me, and, well knowing the stuff Crawford was made of, I received the candle from the hands of Surtees, and bidding the men get needles and wax thread from their knapsacks as the quartermaster withdrew, 
I instantly prepared to set about the job. I often think of that night's work as I sit strapping away in my little shop in Richmond Street, Soho. It was a curious scene to look at, and the task neither very easy nor safe. The riflemen were wearied, unwilling, and out of temper, and it was as much as I could do to get them to assist me. Moreover, they were so reckless that they seemed rather to wish to blow the convent into the air than to get on with their work. One moment the candle was dropped and nearly extinguished. The next they lost their implements between the rafters of the floor, flaring the light amongst the barrels and wishing, as I remonstrated with them, that the powder might ignite and blow me, themselves and the general, too. Well, you know. Such were the riflemen of the Peninsular War, daring, gallant, reckless fellows. I had a hard task to get the work safely finished, but at length, between coaxing and bullying these daredevils, I managed to do so, and together we returned down the convent stairs, and finding Surtees awaiting us in the passage below, he reported to General Crawford that his order had been obeyed. After which we were not permitted again to lie down, and sleep till the bugler woke us the next morning. We remained in the convent part of the next day, and towards evening received orders to leave all our women and baggage behind, and advance towards the enemy. Our four companies, accordingly, were quickly upon the move, and before long we came up with the remainder of the Rifle Corps, which had recently arrived from England with Sir John Moore. As these men saw us coming up, they halted for the moment, and gave us one hearty cheer, following our four companies to pass to the front, as the post of honour, calling us the heroes of Portugal. As we passed to the front, we returned their cheer with pride. Our worn appearance and sunburnt look gave us the advantage over our comrades, we thought, and we marched in the van of the vanguard. War is a sad blunter of the feelings of men. We felt eager to be at it again. Nay, I am afraid we longed for blood as the cheer of our comrades sounded in our ears, and yet, amidst all this, Softer feelings occasionally filled the breasts of those gallant fellows, even whilst they were thirsting for a sight of the enemy. Some of the men near me suddenly recollected, as they saw the snow lying thickly in our path, that this was Christmas Eve. The recollection soon spread amongst the men, and many talked of home, and the scenes upon that night in other days, in old England, shedding tears as they spoke of the relatives and friends never to be seen by them again. As the night approached, we became less talkative. The increasing weariness of our limbs kept our tongues quieter, and we were many of us half asleep as we walked, when suddenly a shout arose in front that the French were upon us. In an instant, every man was on the alert, and we were rushing forward in extended order to oppose them. It proved a false alarm, but it nearly cost me a broken bone or two. The Honourable Captain Pakenham, now Sir Hercules Pakenham, on the first sign of the enemy being in sight, made a dash to get to the front. At the same moment, I myself was scrambling up a bank on the roadside. In the darkness and hurry, the mule the captain mounted on bore me to the ground, and getting his forefeet fast fixed somehow between my neck and my pack, we were fairly hampered for some moments. The captain swore, the mule floundered, and I bellowed with alarm lest the animal should dig his feet into my back and quite disable me. At length, however, the captain succeeded in getting clear and spurred over the bank as I rolled back into the road. It might be somewhere about two o'clock in the morning that our advance into Spain was, for that time, checked, and the retreat to Coruña might be said to commence. General Crawford was in command of the brigade, and riding in front 
when I observed a dragoon come spurring furiously along the road to meet us. He delivered a letter to the general, who turned around in his saddle the moment he read a few lines, and thundered out the word to halt. A few minutes more, and we were all turned to the right about, and retracing our steps of the night before, the contents of that epistle serving to furnish our men with many a surmise during the retrograde movement. When we again neared Sahagun, I remember seeing the wives and children of the men come rushing into the ranks and embracing the husbands and fathers they expected never to see again. The entire rifle corps entered the same convent we had before been quartered in, but this time we remained and ranked in its apartments and passages, no man being allowed to quit his arms or lie down. We stood leaning upon the muzzles of our rifles and dozed as we stood. After remaining thus for about an hour, we were then ordered out of the convent and the word was given again to march. There was a sort of thaw on this day and the rain fell fast. As we passed the walls of the convent, I observed our general, Crawford, as he sat up on his horse, looking at us on the march and remarked the peculiar sternness of his features. He did not like to see us going rearwards at all and many of us judged there must be something wrong by his severe look and scowling eye. "'Keep your ranks there, men,' he said, spurring his horse towards some riflemen who were avoiding a small rivulet. "'Keep your ranks and move on. No struggling from the main body.' We pushed on all that day without halting, and I recollect the first thing that struck us as somewhat odd was our passing one of the commissariat wagons, overturned and stuck fast in the mud, and which was abandoned without an effort to save any of its contents. A sergeant of the 92nd Highlanders, just about this time, fell dead with fatigue, and no one stopped. As we passed, to offer him any assistance, night came down upon us. Without our having tasted food, or halted, I speak for myself and those around me, and all night long we continued this dreadful march. Men began to look into each other's faces, and ask the question, are we ever going to be halted again? and many of the weaker sort were now seen to stagger, make a few desperate efforts, and then fall, perhaps to rise no more. Most of us had devoured all we carried in our haversacks, and endeavoured to catch up anything we could snatch from hut or cottage in our route. Many, even at this period, would have straggled from the ranks and perished, had not Crawford held them together with a firm rein. One such bold and stern commander in the East, during a memorable disaster, and that devoted army had reached its refuge and broken. Thus we staggered on, night and day, for about four days, before we discovered the reason of this continued forced march. This discovery was made to our company by a good-tempered, jolly fellow named Patrick McLaughlin. He inquired of an officer, marching directly in his front, the destination intended. "'Bedge, Alice, Master Mals, I heard him say. "'Where the devil are you taking us to?' "'To England, McLaughlin,' returned the officer." with a melancholy smile upon his face, as he gave the answer, if we can get there. More luck and grace to you, said McLaughlin. And is it easy a manning, is it? This McLaughlin was a good specimen of a thorough Irish soldier. Nothing could disturb his good humour and high spirits, and even during a part of this dreadful march, he had ever some piece of Irish humour upon his tongue's end. Whilst he staggered under the weight of his pack, he would in all probability have been amongst a few who did reach England, but... During the march, he was attacked with the racking pains of acute rheumatism and frequently fell to the ground, screaming with agony. On such occasions, his companions would do that for him, which they omitted to perform towards others. 
there many times halted, heaved him up, and assisted him forwards. Sir Dudley Hill, too, was greatly interested for McLaughlin, trying to cheer him on, whilst the men could scarcely refrain from laughter at the extraordinary things he gave utterance to whilst racked with pain and staggering with fatigue. At length, however, McLaughlin fell one dark night as we hurried through the streets of a village, and we could not again raise him. "'It's no use, Harris,' I heard him say, in a faint voice. "'I can do no more.' Next morning, when day broke, he was no longer seen in the ranks, and as I never saw him again, I conclude he quickly perished.' (laughs) 